The most convincing presentation of a Dilovan type argument. About life growing up in South OC. People would just be like, this is just like bro apologetics. And in a way it would be, but... (laughs) Hello, welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world. Decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. This week we're going to wrap up our exploration through Daniel Coluciello Barber's On Diaspora. Troy, I actually sent a message to Mr. Barber, Dr. Barber. He's not Professor Barber at the moment, I don't think. Um, but I spoke with him uh Actually, over the past couple weeks, I didn't tell you that. I forgot. No. How was that? It's good. I was basically just saying, hey, dude, we're going through your book. We'd love to maybe get you on at some point for a follow-up. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be necessarily like answering questions or maybe things we got wrong. I mean, because then that would basically require him to listen to five hours of us talking about his book, which is a lot to ask of somebody. But basically just to say, hey, if you'd like to come on sometime, maybe we can chat. I know he's got a new project that he's working on that's going to be a new book uh, called Against Conversion. And I think it's a two-parter. And I'm curious because Having read a couple synopses of this work and listened to one or two papers that he's given uh, and then reading this book, I kind of think I get where he might be going. You can kind of see the germinations from this early project. And uh, I think it would just be interesting maybe to just kind of jump in. and So maybe at some point in the coming months we'll be able to get him on. He said he's pretty swamped right now, but we'll maybe try to make some time uh, in the near future. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, super cool. Sweet. So yeah, so we're going to wrap up our exploration of that book by going through the final chapter and then maybe just touching on the brief epilogue. It's only like two pages worth of information, but it was a pretty dense chapter, I thought. I thought it was a really long chapter, or it it had a lot of information, let's say. Like it felt multi-thematic. Yeah, I felt there was a, a bit repetitive, not necessarily in a bad way, but in terms of reemphasizing a lot of the themes from the rest of the book. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I agree. Like the final two sections in particular try to yeah it's it's almost like he, he tries to enfold everything that he'd done in, in chapters two three and four particularly uh four and then the first part of five into what he explored in chapter one and two i guess we might say or intro yeah, in exactly. chapter one something like that where he's trying to like enfold them back in which is a very delizian uh approach to things i think enfold everything Fold your clothes, fold your podcasts, fold your books. (laughs) Folding, man. It's the fold. Um, So, yeah, so we'll delve into that. And then what other housekeeping stuff do we have to do? Uh, We mentioned last week that we are uh, finished up the Patreon poll for our next patron-sponsored episode. And we're going to be doing, um, per our patron's request, the Zizek-Peterson debate. Uh, We have some plans for that, which we're going to hold back for now because not everything's cemented yet. But we're going to be doing that for our next episode. Cool. So look for that in about a week and a half, two weeks or so. Sick. And then, of course, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this week's episode over at Mubi. 
for those of you who have been following. I hope you have been enjoying your free subscriptions. If you have not gotten yours yet, remember that you can go to mubi.com slash owls at dawn. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash owls at dawn. And then for newbies, we'll give you a little bit of a info about what Mubi is. Mubi is a streaming service, but they have a limited rotation. It's a 30-film, 30 30-day as Troy referred to it, slaughterhouse rotation. And Mike from Mubi gave us the A-OK to use that. Um, he, said he, did, <laughs> he did not mind that uh, that designation. But uh, it's basically a, a rotation where a film drops off after 30 days. And then, of course, that means that there's a new film that's added every day for its own 30-day rotation. And there, uh, these films are indie darlings, classics of cinema, uh, regional-slash-foreign films, um, films that have flown under the under the radar, but they're always top quality. They are the the types of films that will give you that film school education that you never had. So, Troy, is there something in the slaughterhouse rotation in the United States Regional Library that is currently interesting you? Yeah, so right now they're doing a can takeover where they're um, airing a bunch of past winners of the Palme d'Or and uh, Grand Jury and all those different awards that Can gives out. Um, and the one that I saw that was really intriguing is a film that I actually haven't seen yet, but I've been meaning to see for a long time. And that's the Romanian film, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days. Mm. Uh, you may know this as kind of being an um, infamous film about um, abortion, which I guess is illegal in Romania at some point. Maybe still is. I don't know. But this is set in the 1980s. And um, a woman seeking to have an abortion. And there's a sort of a uh, thriller element to it, I guess. Um, and it's supposed to be kind of a harrowing, suspenseful, nerve wracking film. Um, it's the kind of film that it gets so much praise at one top prize it can back when it came out and you always want to see, but sometimes it's hard to convince yourself to watch the abortion film, um, mm. on a random Thursday night. But, mm. um, given the sort of social climate right now in the United States, it's especially poignant mm-hmm. to watch a film like this, I think. So, uh, four week, four months, three weeks, and two days. It's a film by, I'm going to butcher this, but the Romanian filmmaker Christian Mungiu. Uh, if anybody out there uh, can pronounce Romanian names better than I can, please let us know how to pronounce that correctly. But, Sweet. Uh, yeah, go ahead on Mubi and use your 30-day free trial to watch four months, three weeks, and two days. Sick. Yeah, and then in my regional library right now, uh, it's obviously a little bit different depending on where you are in the world. Um, I have... uh, So she's one of my favorite young filmmakers, but it's Mia Hansen-Love. Have you ever seen any of her films? Uh, Can you name some? Eden is probably the one that she's most famous for, which is actually the one that is in my current library. And then Things to Come is a film that... Oh, yeah. I think I talked... Did you watch that one? I think I talked to you about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but Eden was her film that really catapulted her into the limelight, and uh, that film is on there right now. Um, there is uh, obviously a Racerhead by David Lynch is in. It just got added a couple days ago. If you've never seen a David Lynch film, a Racerhead is, I think, a wonderful introduction to <laughs> David Lynch. So I feel like if you try to watch Mulholland Drive. It might be a little too much. Uh, if you try to watch Inland Empire, it might be a little too much. But if you jump in with a racer head, it's still going to be too much. But it's going to be just pitched at like perfect Lynchian filmmaking. Like that's to me, it's kind of like the pinnacle, even though it's also kind of the beginning. 
Um, I, I love Eraserhead. So, oh man, Austin, can you watch all 17 hours of the last season of Twin Peaks so we can do a podcast on I it? I haven't seen it. Okay, yeah, you're right. I got to catch up. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so go to movie.com slash owls at dawn and you will get a 30 day free trial, extended trial. Again, that's movie.com slash owls at dawn. But you know what we got to do before we start the main segment of the podcast, Austin? What do we got to do? We got to do the shitty minute. This is where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? All right. So, I'm kind of tiptoeing around this because I know it's an inflammatory issue, but. You don't tiptoe in the shitty minute, dude. You just light shit on fire. All right. So, I'm just going to light some shit on fire. <laughs> um, but no. So, did you see the controversy this week? surrounding a former guest, George Chicarello Mars picture that he posted with his girlfriend. I didn't see this at all. Okay, so he posts a picture with him and his girlfriend in I think New York City. And they're in some store. I don't remember if it was a clothing store or whatever, but it's like a mirror shot, you know, where it's the two of them and they're doing uh, a photo in the mirror. And he posts a picture and he said just something like hello New York City and she is, uh, she used to be on Twitter. They've been together for a while, so it's it's not like this is something new. But she is a Latina woman, and she is, uh, she's younger than him, and she has a youthful appearance, I guess we can say. I don't know if I'm underplaying this. But basically, in his mentions, just an avalanche of people came, uh, started accusing him of, like, grooming her and people started talking about uh, the power asymmetry between him and then they started accusing him of dating a student and then dating an underage girl and all of this stuff just kind of wasn't just a fucking avalanche of hate and like negativity that came and then he responded in a couple of ways and then he actually ended up deactivating his account because it just I, I guess I don't know he wanted to step away or he got sucked into it or whatever. It's it's a losing battle once you start getting into uh, the the comment section type of uh, thing. You you're, you're not going to be able to step back and have a reasonable conversation. You're not in any way going to be able to convince anybody of anything. So maybe he just was like, "Fuck it, I'm out." I don't know. But um, but it was just the thing that was so interesting. And then of course there were varying responses to this. Right? Um, people came out really on two sides. The one side was, no, there's something fucking wrong with this because he's an older man. She's a, a student at his university or at his former university. And then, then there was some confusion about the facts. Some people thought that she was actually his student. From what I understand, she wasn't his student, but she was a student at the university. And um, so then there was like a bunch of, yeah, it's creepy and wrong for a dude to date someone, you know, 10 plus years his junior who's also a former student of his because it's grooming her blah 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 and then you have the other side that's like what so basically you're saying that women don't have agency at all and they're just <laughs> simply subject to their impulses because uh, they can't control themselves when they see uh, an older dude uh, that's uh, a professor yeah so there were there were these like clear divisions that were drawn and people were basically taking sides and I mean obviously we talk about this a lot but social media isn't a place where nuance can be uh, upheld for very long and you know and that's annoying and that's frustrating but really the thing that I'm most frustrated about is I feel like there's a real confusion with the wielding of the word power 
And that seems to be central in this whole thing. So you get one side that's like, there's an asymmetry of power, you know, like he's a professor, uh, there's a responsibility here, um, you know, and he's using that power. And the other side is like, what? So you're saying that a woman doesn't have power, that she's just simply subject to uh, these like fantasies of the older man and that she's going to kind of just give in and that she she has no decision making capacity. And one of the things that I think that is really missing in all of this is how do we understand power? And it's strange because we live in a post-Foucault world. And in a post-Foucault world, people love to talk about power. But nevertheless, when we when we speak about power, there is a difference between power as a zero-sum game and power in the Foucauldian sense. And I feel like there's a real confusion in this situation in particular with trying to use the Foucauldianization of relations of power or trying to understand how power dynamics work and create sort of nodes of consolidation or... Um, of capture, but then at the same time, while also trying to fit that into an idea that power is then a zero-sum game. So it basically goes like this, that the reason that there's a power asymmetry in this dynamic from one side's perspective is because somehow he has more power than her, as though power is something that is this autonomous thing that you can grasp and get. And then once you get it, you lay claim to a percentage of that uh, of that field and then the other person is is left to like pick up the scraps, right? It's a like, stat. Right, exactly. The man has 70% and the woman has 30%. And regardless of, of going into the a priori's about like the idea of the patriarchy, which is then kind of erected to this like transcendent absolute or like a, a master signifier or whatever, which I think is important to actually consider in a sort of reformulating of this power. But without getting into that immediately, the idea is, is that it's just this this simple limited totality and that it's something that you have, that you get, because power is this independent autonomous thing. But if we start thinking about it like that, then we're using a completely different framework than what Foucault was actually trying to get at and what post-Foucauldian uh, theorizations and development on power are actually working through. That power isn't a zero-sum game. It doesn't simply work by that. And that power is actually something much more complicated. It's something much more incipient. It's something much more imminent to constitutive processes. And um, I say this not to simply provide cover for somebody so that they can date younger women, um, but I, I say this so that we have a more nuanced because again, I didn't want to throw my hat into the ring on Twitter, really, on this. Um, so I feel like if we have a, a, a medium like this, you can have a little bit more of a nuanced discussion. And my 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 plea would be like, let's just really make sure that we're not confusing our our frameworks, um, even maybe our metaphysical first principles, if we're going to try to analyze something. Um, and let's not just confuse, you know, two very, very, very different notions of power simply in our rush to try to justify our own presuppositions or to try to feel that we have to keep up and that we have to say something and we have to make a comment um, in, in the immediate. But rather, let's pause and really think through, okay, how does power work? And that maybe it is far more complex. Like, than just simply saying the man has access to X percentage of power and the woman has access only to the scraps Y percentage of power and that that's why there's a power asymmetry. But re really, let's think through how it is that power is constantly shifting, that power dynamics and that the relations of dominance that do accumulate within those power relations are shifting and they change not only uh, cultural moment by cultural moment and historical moment by historical moment, 
but also individually, also within different sectors. Uh, there's a very sort of context-led approach that needs to be taken that really complicates and problematizes this. But, you know, of course the internet does not allow for that, and so it just was fucking annoying to see um, people just simply pile on and, and I think conflate their notions of power simply in their rush to what I think would be to justify their presuppositions. Yeah, and you know what, you know, to co-sign all that and to add to it, what bothers me most about you know, hearing this as a third party is not just the rush to judgment, which of course is just the point of social media, is to just judge things that you you're only faintly familiar with, but it's the the more philosophical um, sense in which it's a rush to judgment, in that you can apply this hastily constructed you know concept of power to this relationship which you barely understand, and then that sort of there's sort of like an assumed entailment of the moral or ethical quality, the normative aspect mm. of what has happening here, right? Without actually thinking about it. Mm. Like, first of all, you shouldn't automatically judge the facts about a situation that you don't understand, of course, right? right. But assuming you have some of the facts correct, right? Or even if you're just speaking in the abstract, using this as an example or an instantiation of something, of some form, um, why should we assume that power asymmetries and whatever... Uh, you know, guys, you want to talk about them necessarily entail certain normative judgments. That's precisely uh, right. I think I think they do, right? But you have to mm -hmm. think about them. You have to actually deduce that, right? right? You have to actually, you know, detail out why these certain factors uh, entail certain normative aspects. Right. And that's of course never done, right? It's just assumed asymmetry of power here. That's wrong because reasons. Therefore, it's bad. Well, and and right? it's asymmetry of power. In a very simple sense, it's just simply that power is just this simple, static, homogenous uh, entity that you lay claim to or that you have access to based on your privileged, privileged position, right? And once you get that, then that determines how it is that you like flow. So I as a man am given access to 50% of this power bar automatically and then I have a college degree therefore I get another 5%. I'm white there I, I get another 15%. Um, whatever. I, I have all of these attributes therefore I have these other things. So I, I walk around with 85% power. Therefore <laughs> any situation that I get into I'm only ever, ever going to be giving up some of that power insofar as I can meet someone who is like what? an equal claimant to some uh, to some of this power, but then what allows that person to have access to that power? It's this strange like video game theory of power that, that when Foucault is writing about these different forms of disciplinary power and pastoral power, and when various other figures later like Deleuze is working through notions of like control society, there's something that is shifting f away from that way of thinking about it and that it's trying to look more at power as this like imminent process that latches on to things and that is expressing itself. And, and even though, yes, there is going to, like you say, be a sort of normative implication that comes from that, it's not simply the norms of if you have power, that's bad. Therefore, an expression of that. If you have power, don't use it. Exactly. Right. That's not what it is. It, it, it's not that necessarily power corrupts in that simple sense. It's in what ways is power expressed, towards what ends, in what context, in what relations to what other person or other s sets of uh, power dynamics are you embedded. And it isn't that you only have 
a percentage of power. It's that all of you are uh, in this field kind of swirling together, creating these weird amalgamations and consolidations of different sort of power dynamics that are themselves breaking apart and reforming in different connections. And and I think when we talk about sexual power dynamics, one of the things we need to consider is, so like, like what if you're, and this is a serious question, what if you're a nerdy uh, older dude and you're like, you're not like some suave, uh, charming, typically like super attractive older dude, right? But you're kind of just middle of the road, kind of nerdy, a little bit socially awkward maybe, a, a middle of the road like physical attractive, but kind of a little bit socially awkward. And you meet a really attractive, like wealthy, powerful woman, but she's 15 years younger than you. Who has the power dynamic in that? Who has the power advantage in that? Like maybe this guy has never dated a hot like Instagram model girl. Well, there's power in the fact that she has this these attributes that society has deemed to be extremely valuable. In that in that designation of value from society that she's beautiful, maybe she is like insta famous and that she also uh I don't know is like she's pre-med and she's going to be a fucking neuroscientist or something like that as well, right? Um like what what is how does power how does what social what society has deemed valuable how does that translate into power in that relationship where they meet and maybe it's not his student but still maybe she's somebody on campus and he's walking and maybe he's still youthful looking like how do we understand that dynamic and i'm again i'm not just trying to simply provide cover for somebody to do whatever the fuck they want but the question is, is we need to look at things not simply on an individual basis but we also need to, to understand things in their larger societal context to understand how it is that society deems things valuable in a way and in that deeming of those things being valuable power relations are constituted and they contract on bodies in different ways to varying extents um, and in various different contexts because then again maybe she will find him attractive because he's smart and she's used to dating like frat boys and those frat boys they don't offer the thing that this guy can offer to her because he loves poetry or whatever it is that he loves and he has a, a sort of depth that she hasn't found among the generation that she's used to dating and then simultaneously he is maybe going to find her very attractive because one she's intelligent and two she's gorgeous and he's not used to getting that type of attention from that type of girl because he doesn't have the chad attributes that like typically uh, normie culture values so what's going on there who has the power advantage in that scenario and i think i think that when we when we think about things by kind of complicating them more we really problematize what we might call the metaphysics of power and i think that's something that we need to do when we're considering pretty much everything but i think especially in in situations like this before we just fucking pile on and try to force somebody off of social media cuz we just don't like them because fuck the patriarchy or whatever you know yeah and i don't think that the point is to say it's so problematic that there isn't an answer the point is to say it's problematic and there's lots of factors involved and all those factors are ingredients for thought. You have to use those factors when thinking about a situation that you're in or you're someone that you're um, overseeing or in a, in a proper place to judge for some reason. You have to consider all those factors as ingredients and then develop some argument that has normative implications, right? Mm. The normative implications don't just automatically follow. Mm. We have to think about them. And everybody who is in a relationship has asymmetrical power dynamics involved. Um, sometimes it's because of your identity. Sometimes it's because of different situations you're in. 
where a person's sick. You have to think about, well, how should I treat this person that I care about given that they're sick and they're not in their normal state of mind? That's mm. a power dynamic now that's different between you for a you know temporal uh, period. Mm. And that's going to affect how you treat them. You wouldn't treat them the same way if they were fully healthy and cognizant. Um, so all those factors are ingredients for sort of baking the cake of deciding how to act and deciding what's right. And you have to sort of develop those and put those all together first before you can make any um, real, you know, important or thoughtful decisions about what to do or what should be done. Also, power is sexy. Like, power is attractive. We are attracted to power. Now, what do we mean by that? Are we attracted to exploitative, abusive power? Sure, some people are, but I think there's something else. There's there's something about, like, for me, I, I'm attracted to talent. So if I go to a concert and I see a woman, I mean, she doesn't even have to be, like, typically according to, uh, like, Vogue magazine beauty. But if she is a talented singer, I might fall in love with her during that concert. Like, it has happened many times where I have... There's no might there, dude. <laughs> I will fall in love with her during that concert. But the thing is, is, is I also think that in that experience of eros, in that experience of desire in that moment, that doesn't necessarily mean that I therefore must like marry her. But but there's a recognition that I am definitely under a spell by like to use outdated language, you know, the muses that have fallen upon her and the gods that have bewitched me by her entrancing music. Like that happens, dude. I go to a theater show, you know, I see a lot of live theater. When someone is a talented actor, I am like, I'm in love with this person. I mean, that's that's part of the reason that I was attracted to a, a girl that I dated for a long time in LA who's an actor. It was, we were in an acting class together and she was so talented. I mean, yes, she's beautiful, but there are, everyone's beautiful in LA. So that doesn't mean anything. But, <laughs> um, but when she got up on stage, her fearlessness and her, her talent was so apparent to me that I was like, oh my God, like, this woman is transcendent. And um, so those things, when we, and I think it obviously it, it differs from person to person, but when we find those things that are really our triggers of eros, those are power things. And in a way, that's a power asymmetry. That's literally, you know what I'm thinking? You know, like um, the Goofy cartoon when he would like smell a pie and then he like floats in the air or something. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like in those cartoons, that's how I feel. Like it's like I it's like power catches me and all of a sudden I'm just like floating drawn to it. And um and and I think there's something that we need to consider about who we are as entities that are drawn to these things that are attractive and how is it and why is it that those things attract us? Why is my desire constituted in such a way that there's like this gravitational pull in this particular direction? How do we understand that? And then we can also be critical about it and we can say, is it a good thing? Is it the best thing? Is it the way that society ought to operate, that we are attracted to simply uh, a photograph of Channing Tatum on a cover? Like, is that something that should be the foundational logic of society when we understand sexual power relations, that we just want these Adonis-like figures on our magazine covers so that we then use filters to judge ourselves and then beat ourselves up because we don't look 
like Brad Pitt from Fight Club because our body isn't quite there. There's also a bad thing about these societal values that can kind of entrance us and that can cause these power dynamics. So there is room for criticism, but it's a much more complicated approach rather than just simply saying because there's power, therefore, like you said, there's necessarily something that is bad about wielding that power or an expression of that power. And I, and I think yeah, that, yeah, in, go ahead. Anytime you listen to a song or watch a movie and it makes you feel something, that's somebody exercising power over you. Absolutely. Or some entity exercising power over you. There's got to be a lot more to the thought and the judgment about whether that's good or bad than just the fact of whether or not there is power being exercised. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And then there are some people who, because they do have um, a level of agency that, that, that they want expressed in a way of pain that love mass to to kind of be dominated you know like they love that like that's masochists right they love the idea that they can somehow have somebody dominate them now of course that's a different context because there seems to be a uh, an explicit consensual um contract almost but then again but then we're 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 presuming that there is this uh, necessarily contractual like explicit legal framework that determines the relationship and if we use that as the benchmark is that the benchmark for all relations all human relations necessarily i don't know it, it just seems to not necessarily be the only way by which we ought to measure things i i, I don't know i don't know I'm, now i'm kind of rambling and i've lost my thought but it, it just seems yeah, we can talk about we can talk about the idea of consent for hours yeah that's true that's true. But yeah, that was my frustration is that we really need to think through what power means. And and I just think that there's a lot of like playing fast and loose with this notion of power simply because um, it's a term that everyone likes to talk about. But I think, not to sound like a snob, but I think that people oftentimes don't know what they are saying. At least you know, there's, the there's an inconsistency when they're using it. And so we can do better. We can really think through these things. And if we want to talk about relations of power, then let's really try to work through what is going on when we're talking about it. If we want to talk power as a zero-sum game, because I do think that there are instances when power can be expressed in a zero-sum format. Well, what are those contexts? How is it expressed in those ways? But we can't just simply conflate it and because then we just end up confusing the terms. So, You know what the real lesson here is, dude? The real lesson here is to go to a live concert and fall in love. No. Oh. The real answer is don't take selfies or <laughs> go on the internet. That's it, man. I know. Dude, did you see? So there's a comedian in Scotland. His name's Limmy. He posted his tweet was, uh, he's like, what if everyone is born canceled and then they just have to spend the rest of their life walking it back? And everyone was like, bro, that's called Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, I know those feels. That's uh, so funny. <laughs> God. Yeah, man. That's what shit a minute. Rant over. Life is crazy. Stop fucking tweeting about negative shit. Just share articles and information and let's just build communities and get offline. Yeah, remember and... when Twitter was that? <laughs> I know. I try I try to cultivate my Twitter so that it is like that. And for the most part it is, but the problem is, is that shit seeps in because other people like Twitter now has gotten really into this thing where it's like somebody who's a friend of a friend likes something and then it ends up in my Twitter feed. I'm like, yo, I don't follow that person for a reason, probably. So, I mean, sometimes I find people in a cool way because of that, but I don't want to necessarily just see what some other person who some other person that I follow follows, follows, follows information that they think was interesting because fuck, I don't care about Donald Trump's latest tweet. So get that shit out of my feed. 
Yeah, maybe it should be the the thing about um, everybody starting canceled. It should just start out where everyone's blocked, and then you have to <laughs> manually unblock people. But how do you earn your points so that you can unblock yourself? Oh yeah, you have a limited number of points you can use. That's even better. I like okay. that. Okay, introduce <laughs> some scarcity into this shit, this environment. <laughs> Uh, this would be the least popular website ever. <laughs> if you could turn it into a game somehow, then it might actually be interesting. That would actually be kind of cool. Damn. I'm going to have to edit Wait, this out so nobody steals our idea. <laughs> <laughs> Is it what? Isn't that Catholicism? Gamified yeah. moral scarcity? <laughs> that is, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We could have a Catholic version of it, and then you can have the Protestant <laughs> version of it. What's the Protestant version? The Calvinist version of it. Oh, my God. I mean, it, the Calvinist version is... Uh, you think you have control, but actually there's a bunch of Twitter devs who are deciding who you're following here. Yeah, only a select few have been chosen from eternity past to ever be unblocked. (laughs) 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 All right, sweet. So let's get into our main segment and talk about the final chapter of Daniel Cucciello Barber's On Diaspora. It's been a good read, man. Um... I, uh, I enjoy, I think I've said this before, but I really do enjoy being able to read with you over a period of, uh, of a couple of months a book like this. Because even though I'm not reading it every day or I'm not even thinking about the book every day, there's something about the kind of like slow percolation of this information that even if I set the book down for a week or a week and a half and then I pick up the next chapter, uh, that sort of gets reignited in a very productive sense. And... Um, I, I just really enjoy actually doing this with you. So thank you very much, Troy. I had fun. Yeah, dude, I think it's perfect in terms of it's just long enough to let the ideas kind of seep in um, and, as you said, percolate into your other thoughts, but not too long that you start forgetting the arguments and the, the major themes and points. So I think it's been really good for these books that we want to, you know, not just read for the sake of, regurgitating or having information regurgitated out to us but to actually kind of affect the network of our ideas and thoughts Hmm. which is why we choose the books that we do yeah exactly i mean in a way there's um there's a there's a selfishness to the books that we're choosing it's not just books out of a vacuum or because society thinks we should read them or a particular discipline thinks we should read them but it's i think both of us are these are books that we want to read and so wait, so what? A Twitter poll didn't choose Prozorov? <laughs> no, they definitely. That did was not the impression choose. that I got. <laughs> did not choose. Pro- I don't think any Twitter poll would choose Prozorov. They should, but I don't <laughs> think it would. So, how do you want to start off? This final chapter is chapter five. It's called the differentiality of differentialities, which is jargony and confusing. But don't worry, it <laughs> does make sense. And it's broken up into a few subsections. The first one is affliction and mimesis. And do you think that, because this is really, we, there's a lot of information here. And like you said, there, there is some repetition. So what do you think the easiest way, do you want to just give a basic summation of the argument of this chapter and then unpack that? Or do you want to try to go through it sequentially? Yeah, so I don't think that there's a need to go through it sequentially. Um, okay. Unless you can see a reason that I don't see. It seems to me like this chapter really... Uh, makes one major new newish point, and then kind of uses that to recapitulate all the stuff about Christianity, religion, and and secularism that um, have been made before. And so, just to recap really, really briefly, um, Barber's argued for this kind of touchstone 
important concept that he calls interparticularity. And do you know is that his concept, or was that in Deleuze or someone else before? I don't know. I think I think it's it's his concept, yeah, or at least in his usage, it's unique. Yeah. So interparticularity is also kind of defined as reciprocal co-constitution, and it's this claim that at the ontological level. Uh, things and the things we're talking about usually here are discursive traditions like Christianity and Judaism and others um, are constituted as the things that they are um, by other things and other things co-constitute them. So it's this relay effect where it's going back and forth in terms of constitution um, that Barbara's been talking about. And the real new point that I see in this chapter is um, the notion that this interparticularity does not happen just between discrete particulars, but within the discrete particulars themselves, such that they themselves are not static entities, um, even in moments of time, but are always sort of uh, enveloped by this, he uses the term referencing back to the book of Genesis, this chaos or this formless and voidness at the center mm-hmm. of things. And so the, the big new point that I see here is to say it's not just that there's this chaos of a bunch of particulars, which is kind of what like Prozorov called like passive nihilism, right? There's just a whole mm-hmm. bunch of particulars and no universal, and that's just the end. Um, Barber's saying not just that, but even the particulars themselves um, have this sort of uh, chaos in the midst of them or in the center of them. Um, and that goes back to the notion we talked about way back in the first chapter of the relay between um, signification and the uh, impropriety of signification. The need to name things and to sort of make them static, but then the recognition that they're not at the same time and that you have to have both of those things. Hmm. Um, that seems to me to be the main point of this chapter. Is that what you saw as well? Yeah, and I think that that is what he's ultimately working through uh, let's say that's like the middle and the reason that that's like the meat let's say and the top layer of the bun is the reason that he is developing that type of approach is because he believes that there is an affliction of which we need to be cured and uh, it's a an affliction that are at work in the logics that he says of Christianity, religion, and secularism by a mode of dominance that is deployed through a logic of transcendence, which we've talked about. That there is this plane of transcendence that is erected that becomes what we might call uh, a master signifier or some sort of transcendental signified or some sort of a priori absolute. And he wants to develop an approach that will be completely other than simply by proposing an alternative transcendent cure. So rather than saying that uh, secularism, for example, supersedes religion and Christianity, instead of instead of thinking along those lines, what Barber wants to offer is um, this notion of interparticularity that sort of complicates that that problematizes, that immanentizes the relationship, the co-constitutive relationship between these discursive traditions rather than simply saying that they are these discrete units that replace one another. And again, this kind of fits, there's a theory of power here 
actually interestingly to tie kind of tie this into my shitty minute, which I didn't really think about when I was formulating the shitty minute, but that there is um there's a way of viewing how discursive traditions contest or overcome or supersede the previous one from within a logic that we might say is zero sum. And all I would I would say, I think all zero sum logics of power operate according to this sort of transcendent logic that Barber has been contesting throughout, right? So secularism somehow overcoming the particular discursive tradition of Christianity is viewed as they had power, they had cultural power and political power. But that's why we need secularism to overcome that that uh, asymmetry of power that exists. They had access to 85% of the power bar, and now we need to kind of encroach on that landscape and take back so that we have 85% and then continually push them to the margins so that eventually they're off the power grid, so to speak, right? And and Barber, I think, his approach by trying to develop what he calls an imminent cure to these afflictions that emerge from the logics of Christianity's religion and secularism, um, we... In order to find that affliction, we must simply eschew the notion of maybe we might say zero-sum power dynamics altogether, uh, or what he would say, we need to eschew the sort of plane of transcendence altogether. And I think that's what leads him then to to kind of trying to figure out this imminent cure, which he says is some sort of mimetic cure, which I thought was really interesting. So if what you described was like the meat of the hamburger, then I think what I just described is kind of like the bun. And then, of course, the conclusion is the other bun, but we can get get to that. Yeah, I think that there's a strong notion here that um, I was always thinking of, you know, that scene in Reservoir Dogs where, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs, it came out like 30 years ago. So <laughs> Spoiler alert for a film that came out 30 years ago. <laughs> um, when all the dudes shoot each other at once. Yeah. Right, because they're all kind of going for the same thing and then seeing right. the other person in their way. That's yeah, what yeah. secularism does with Christianity, right? It says, well, we have this problem that, that Christianity and the uh, and Christendom have created, and the only way to solve it is to just take its power against it, just shoot it, right? Um, hmm. And that ends up actually shooting yourself because you're not really nullifying the the power asymmetry that was created by this concept of Christianity or this the, what flows from the concept of Christianity. Instead, you're just taking it on yourself with all of its problems. Like you're just contracting the disease, so to speak. And instead, Barbara wants to diffuse that notion from the beginning by saying even Christianity itself never had um, this sort of dominance, right? It's, it itself is not a static identity um, that existed with some, you know, sure uh, origin in the beginning. Instead, it has this chaos within it. And uh, or inconsistency within it from which consistencies are derived or built. And if you reconceive the origin that way, then everything that flows from the origin, given these new initial conditions, is going to have that sort of, those problems are going to be diffused later on, right? Mm. It's sort of curing the disease, as he says, affliction, so the symptoms go away rather than just treating the symptoms themselves, which is sort of what secularism tries to do. Right, and and here here I think it's really important or, or here's what I've found really helpful in trying to work through what he thinks as a, a better cure, an imminent cure to this affliction, is is we can frame it in terms of there's a relationship between parts and whole, 
or between content and form. And so I think that there's a myriological dynamic here as well. And uh, so for people listening, myriology is the study of parts and relations to wholes, right? And so I think so often we tend to think that, for example, the problem with Christianity is the content of the things that Christians believe. They believe that the earth was created in six days, literal days. They believe that uh, evolutionary theory is bunk. They believe that uh, a god-man rose from the earth and is floating somewhere in outer space right now in three-dimensional space or whatever as a Do friend of ours. Do they believe that? No. I mean, they might assent to that, but I don't know if you can believe that. We had a friend in university, uh, Austin, who said this uh, one time, I think. And he was kind of like, you realize that the pers- that like something like, he's like, the way that you're framing this, he's like, where is Jesus? He's like, is he just floating around by like, did he like float past Mars on his way to heaven? <laughs> he's like, if he literally ascended in three-dimensional space, that means he is somewhere physically in the known universe. <laughs> Where is this place where he is? And they're like, no, no, it's heaven. It's a different dimension. He's like, but that's not the three-dimensional universe then. Then you're, you're talking about yeah, something you else. you resurrected into a three-dimensional body and stayed right. that way. Yeah, what does that, that mean? You said. <laughs> yeah, you said that. That means he floated up above Palestine, out in through the exosphere, out into outer space, and somehow flew past like Venus and Mars and was able to breathe space air? Like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> um... But uh, but I think that people tend to think that that's what's wrong and that, that the, the battle then takes place at the level of content. And so we need to change the content so that secularism then is viewed as like a shift in content, a shift in the parts. But Barber's primary concern is actually formal. He's concerned more at the level of formal reconstruction. And that doesn't negate the importance of the parts or the content, but rather the point is is that if you simply are trying to uh, shift the content from a Christian narrative to a secular narrative, the limitation is, is that you actually only reproduce the logic of transcendence because you've never contested the formal logic of transcendence itself. And if you never contest the totality, if you never contest the whole or the form, then you will simply just repeat the risks of transcendence. So it can't just simply about a shift in content or a shift in parts. It has to be a shift in formal transformation. Yeah, and following that shift in, in form, the shift in content is entailed in that, right? Yes. Because you can't, for, for instance, as, as an example, you can't believe that um, everybody who doesn't believe in the name of Jesus will go to damnation for all eternity. You can't believe that if you hold to the notion that the Christianity itself is has like interparticular constant... Uh, co-constitution with every other discursive tradition it comes in contact with. Um, you just, you just, you couldn't really derive that, right? That flows from the notion that Christianity has a stable identity as a thing delivered from God to human beings and, and cannot change. Um, so the changes in content crucially follow from the changes in form rather than uh, just changing on their own. So I have a question, though. Do you think, because this is something that I have encountered in my frustrations with social science as a discipline um, that I think also branches out into other disciplines as well that are more, let's say, um, positivist or more scientifically inclined, is that there's a real um, insufficient attention to the formal, right? Whereas philosophy is 
historically at least eminently concerned with the formal, right? Um, not certain strands of, of philosophy, you know, a kind of logical positivism would not be as concerned with the formal as much. But there are, um, the history of philosophy is definitely, in, in metaphysics at least, is eminently concerned with the form. I, I actually tweeted this out recently because I was talking with somebody online. Danny Roderick uh, is, a, is a famous economist for people listening. And he has been very critical of macroeconomics really ever since the financial collapse. And this has been something that he's continually written about. And he recently tweeted the other day about how economics is more concerned with basically, I can't remember exactly how he worded it, but it was something like just uh, answering the questions that it already has put forth rather than really examining its own priors. And so because of that, there's an inherent limitation within ec the economic discipline. And then, um, you know, I liked that. And I was going to ask him, but then I was like, eh, I'm not going to ask him. But then uh, a guy, J.W. Mason, who's a great economist for people who don't know him, he's one of those people that you should follow on Twitter. Um, yes. He, he quote tweeted it. And so I asked him, and he didn't respond, I don't think. But I basically said, okay, so, so Francis Bacon uh, famously made a distinction between physics and metaphysics, where physics is concerned with material and efficient causes, and metaphysics is concerned with formal and teleological causes. I said, could we not say something similar about economics is concerned with material and efficient causes, but it seems to ignore the formal and the teleological. And when Danny Roderick says is that uh, that economics needs to be eminently concerned with its priors, that's a that's a plea, whether or not he realizes it or not, for formal reconstruction. Maybe not teleological. We can deal with that one later. But it's definitely a recognition that there is something problematic with the a prioris of uh, economics, which once you start speaking in that language, if you're going to sufficiently address that, you need to look at the formal level. You can't simply then rely on uh, an examination into efficient and material causes to truly address uh, the a priori or the priors that you find to be insufficient, or you will risk doing the very thing that Barber here is saying happens when we simply try to construct uh, a logic of transcendence as a cure for the affliction. You just simply repeat, if you will, the logic of dominance. You repeat that plane of transcendence just in a different guise, whereas it's the plane of transcendence itself that needs to be contested. It's the logic of transcendence itself as articulated in these uh, discrete discursive traditions that needs to be contested. And I would say that we could think of economics as being a discrete discursive tradition or a particular discursive tradition, one that itself has a tendency to repeat uh, certain priors. Well, what are those priors? How do we, how do we get at those priors, right? Um, so what I wonder is, and, and so, so I get frustrated because social science oftentimes seems very limited in, in its willingness to engage at that level. Um, not that I'm saying that Roderick and Mason aren't. I don't know if, if they would be interested in exploring that further. Um, but, um, but I do feel like that generally speaking, there's a real lack of um, willingness and maybe even ability. I, I do think that there are some inherent limits in a lot of social scientific um, methodologies that foreclose the possibility of actually engaging in this type of formal reconstruction. But um, so what I wonder, though, is is let's grant that that, that, that that is the case. But is it not also the case then, and is it not true that there's some validity that by engaging at the level of content or by engaging at the level of the parts that you're also transforming the form, that, that if there is a necessary sort of like um, – co-primordiality between content and form or between part and whole why is it insufficient to to address 
uh, a sort of like reconfiguration of the content? Is it is it simply that if you only do that, then you end up reproducing the transcendence? Um, whereas if you only engage at the formal, that that doesn't seem to have the same limitations. That if you only engage at the formal, you do substantively transform the content. So why isn't it sufficient? I mean, do you know what I mean? I'm trying to I'm trying to articulate this. I'm sorry. I'm not I'm not being very clear. Does it make sense? What I'm even are you basically saying? saying? Why can't you just change the content in the same way you would? As if you had changed the form in order to change the content, but without changing the form in the first place. Yeah, like it seems sufficient from what Barbara's saying that same if you address different means. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, why? What? Well, what are those limitations? I do think that there are limitations, but what are the limitations of just simply trying to address the the, the change in content? Yeah, I think. I mean, just generally speaking, um, the point I would try to make. We make this a lot in the podcast. Is every time you speak or think you are positing a metaphysics of some sort. Yeah. And so what, you know, oftentimes the scientists try to do is just kind of eschew that or at least act as if those questions have already been answered when of course those are philosophical questions and oftentimes always pretty much they are under contestation. Um, and so that creates its own, you know, philosophical problems. In this specific instance, I think the the idea is that, um, you really are foreclosed from changing the contents in the same way you would if you first rejected the logic of transcendence at this formal level and instead mm -hmm. posited the logic of imminence for Barber because um, I think he even posits this possibility of, well, why can't we just have this, you know, uh, interparticular um, co-constitution that's happening um, at the level of contents? Well, at that point, you miss out on the fact that this uh, co-constitution happens within the particulars and not just between them. Um, and that requires the change at the formal level um, to get that point. Otherwise, you fall into this notion where it's just a bunch of uh, cultural, he says this in the epilogue, I think, a bunch of independent cultural values that are sort of negotiating with one another. right? Mm -hmm. But then those those particular values themselves are static, stable, independent eternal entities. Um, and that just comes from the the identitarian thinking that he's, you know, creating as his boogeyman. So it just doesn't seem like, it seems like it's, you're foreclosed from making the necessary change to the level of content unless you first make the change at the formal level. Mm. Yeah. No. Yeah, I mean I guess you I don't I don't know if, if he's necessarily arguing this, but yeah, the you would have to then support how it is that that in every um, effort to address the parts or a rearrangement, you are actually reaffirming uh, the form that that there is this necessary kind of coherence between the two. And I wonder, I wonder if there's a sort of um, like monad logic here that like even the the parts are actual sort of like. They're expressions of the whole. They reflect or refract, if you will, the whole. And so that that to truly like transform the content, it can't just simply be like a rearranging of the order of them, right? Because as soon as you're doing anything, you are engaging at the level of the normative. You simply are reproducing a metaphysic. You are 
working from certain priors. And he talks about this idea of interpolative determination, which um, interpolate inter, interpolation is a term that he, he uses previously. And I think we talked about it. It's the, for people listening, it's the, um, Althusse famously says, it's when the police officer says stop and you stop. In that moment, you have, uh, you have been incorporated into the, the police structure by affirming it, by responding to it. And in the enactment of that, uh, that sort of larger structure of uh, what might be like a repressive state apparatus for Althusse um, has been uh, sort of embodied like we might say, internalized in the constitution of your subjectivity. And so there's this tendency, it seems, that that we are always engaged in some sort of interpolative act, right? Um, going to drive my car to the, the store, I'm burning fuel and I'm listening to the radio or to music or whatever and to Apple Music, so I'm using my iPhone that is uh, a part of global supply chains that uh, are you know, extracting precious minerals from the Congo and um, I'm using up data and tied into these larger networks that are then uh, these like internet networks and they're being funded by financial systems and then I go and I spend my money and there's almost an ascent. There's, um, there's a participation through this imminent interpolative process that I'm always engaged in. So the issue is, is how do you get out of that? right? How do you get out of that interpolative, determinative process? Because it seems then in one sense from within the, this framing is that there's no way out ever. You're only ever just going to be repeating the metaphysics. You're only ever going to be repeating the plane of transcendence, right? And I think that would be, I think if somebody read this, they would say, then there's, there is no way out, right? Like, this is this leads us to the sort of Lacanian, Zizekian pessimism. That's like no, everything's ideology. You can't get out. You're fucking stuck in it, and that's why Zizek is a goddamn misanthrope, because <laughs> he is. He's 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 not hopeful. And we'll talk about this in the the Zizek Peterson debate. But he even says it at one point. He's not. He doesn't have hope for this because he's so locked into this logic of ideological control that. It's not only can you never get out of ideology for Zizek, it's almost as though there's like a, a fatalism and a defeatism that is determined by ideological control. Um, and I think I think that that's a, that's a good step in getting us to the cure, but then the next, the way out of that is where Barber then says, okay, this is why we need to think of imminence as being excessive surplus because there's always something that escapes. The logic of enclosure and interpolation, the logic of enclosure um, from these priors, the logic of enclosure from uh, the a priori norms and categories that impinge upon us and that frame and determine our action, uh, they foreclose what can and might be done, but only within limits. And there's always something excessive. And it's actually that excess that is what creates flow and movement and um for Deleuze it's the virtual for Bedou it's like the void I think for Barber here it's that chaos that you talked about of, of the deep right but it's important to understand that it, it almost feels like he's trying to say that uh he's trying to intensify the problem to say that 
that any sort of approach from within uh, a transcendent logic is only going to further intensify our affliction. Um, and that's why we must think of imminence and then of imminent surplus because that's the only way to truly get out of this process of interpolation and ideological control. No? So this leads me to uh, really my biggest concern with trying to ascertain what the um, like impetus is or the cash value of, of this whole analysis. So you know, Barbara makes this distinction in this chapter between history telling and fabulation. Yeah. Where he says history telling has this entailment of necessity about it, where these events had to follow these other events. It's a you know causal necessity and um, the effect is contained in the cause. Whereas the uh, notion of fabulation instead is able to follow the logic of eminence where you sort of um, constitute consistencies, like narratives out of inconsistencies and there's no there's no sense in which there's a necessity involved it could have been different it can be different tomorrow right it can be uh, constituted differently again using the same sort of material realities um and he and he posits that as being sort of the the better mode um for a discursive tradition to take um when sort of thinking about itself and its own um, ontological status and what I don't really understand is how that automatically is the cure, how that gets us out of the affliction. Cause it seems to me like I can think of how that sort of logic can be used to do all sorts of horrible shit um, in the same way that the more identitarian forms do. There seems to be, and maybe I'm just reading into this because I'm so concerned with normative aspects, but it seems to me like there's an obvious implicit normative claim here using terms like affliction and cure, I think I'm justified in thinking that. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't see how that's actually fleshed out or argued for. Um, how does this resolve the clear, I think, problems with um, the more dominant modes and authoritarian modes of, of thought that exist in things like you know Christian discourse and secular discourse and stuff like that? Why couldn't this sort of differential thinking um, just be another form in which these horrible uh, atrocities are justified. So um, this is where I think we can turn to Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari and where I think that similar criticisms can be and have been leveled against their frame of thinking. Let's say that at one point in simple terms, uh, the immediate response would be that all transcendent thinking, all identitarian thinking operates under what we might call um, an apparatus of capture or according to a logic of apparatus or according to a logic of capture, right? So the state for them in I think A Thousand Plateaus is what they refer to as being an apparatus of capture. I've heard John David Ebert refer to this as uh, an apparatus of semiotic capture. And what you have then is are these discursive traditions, let's say Christianity, that is established in the way that it is able to capture all meaning and value. And um, you can think of the cathedral, for example, as being like this perfect physical expression of this or instantiation of this, right? You go in and you have the cross that is at the, at the altar. And the cross is the master signifier, um, 
it is the signifier that starts the chain of signification, that starts the chain of meaning. And then all the saints and all these other various uh, semiotic elements um, comprise, if you will, this larger apparatus of semiotic capture, right? And Christianity is itself, I think, an apparatus uh, of semiotic capture. What the Deleuze and I think what Barber's response would be is that this chaotic deep, this uh, this differential of differentialities um, itself is already in in itself it is it is already something that is not captured it is pure productivity beyond a regime of semiotic capture as such it is it is the thing that scrambles it is the white noise that exists um ontologically prior to um any sort of capture in any sort of discursive tradition or any sort of state apparatus or any sort of uh, economic regime. And the problem here is that it, it seems that that's just simply a first principle that you assume is axiomatic. And, um, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't think it's just simply like a bland a priori that you have to just simply say, okay, that's it. That's that's my metaphysical first principle. Uh, difference, you know, it's it's uncapturable in itself. Um, I do think that there are ways to really work through trying to how to argue this. I think Barber goes part of the way, but I think he's assuming on, at least as I read this, I, th I think he's assuming or, or working on a lot of work that's already been done by other figures who are thinking from difference. And I think that that's, that's the reason why, is that when you realize that this like chaotic deep or that difference in itself um, has this, or that, that pure eminence, which I think he thinks he established by appealing to Spinoza and the notion of God or nature and the idea of excessive signification and impropriety and things like that in the first chapters. I think he thinks he's done the work, but I think that I'm not sure... I'm not sure that it might be sufficient for somebody like you who then wants to go to the metaphysical level. I think for what he's doing in this book, it, it's sufficient. But I think for someone like you, then you're like, okay, but now let's step, step back and let's really look at this Spinozist eminence, uh, 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 theory of eminence, and let's really understand how it itself is not simply subject to priors that condition its flow. But the reason is because eminence as priority, um, is already posited as something not that is transcendently beyond, but as something that is excessive of any regimes of signification per se. Not that it isn't expressed through signification. It is, as Barber tries to articulate here. But nevertheless, there's this surplus, this excessive surplus of imminence that is never fully captured. Or as John Beasley Murray writes in a book called Post-Hegemony, he says, something always escapes. And it's that something that escapes that is the excessive surplus of imminence that is productive, that is never foreclosed, and that always creates potentiality for the possibility of all of these discursive traditions from themselves being differentiated as they are always being differentiated. And so the question is, is how does fabulation, which is a Bergsonian term, by the way, how does fabulation um, issue from difference rather than issuing from the phased being of constituted identities 
And I think that we need to understand that, that Barber is simply trying to say that he uses the word fabulation. I actually, in my book, I talk about it as being imagination, but I actually use the word fabulation a little bit. But I think that you can have an imaginative disposition that flows from this decompositional field of differentiality rather than simply um, a, a frame of thought that flows from the constituted identities of particular discursive traditions. And that's the distinction there. Does that help in any way? Or does that just make yeah. you more frustrated? Yeah, I mean, well, probably both because it seems like, and this, every time I talk to somebody who has this kind of Deleuzean background, this seems to be how this conversation goes, is I try to make some claim about how the the ontological claims about difference and identity have this weird relation to the normative claims which follow, which seem to be embedded in there. And then the answer is, here's a bunch of recapitulation of the ontological claims about difference. I'm like, well, yeah, I understand that. The point was, I get that. I don't think I accept it at an ontological level. But just to, for the sake of argument, let's talk about it. And, and to be fair, I want to admit, I think it's much more plausible as an account of discursive traditions than it is of objects, um, objects you know, proper. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm more than happy to, to talk about it. And this guy is that Barbara's talking about with Christianity and Judaism and secularism and stuff like that. But that aside, um, I, the, the question never seems to be addressed because it seems to me like in the broad strokes, there is a, a tendency to just say everything that follows from identitarian thinking is bad, politically, ethically, and otherwise, but mostly politically. And everything that, that follows from differential thinking is therefore good. And there was a reference here in the footnotes to... Um, uh, Hart and Negri's uh, multitude, <laughs> and I don't know what Barber's background is there, but I see the connection. And well, he he went to Duke, <laughs> which is yeah, Michael, well, I, that connection, Michael Hart, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know the connection in terms of uh, conceptually. If there's like a oh yeah, if this is sort of a, a, a like a pure like backdrop for the idea of the multitude, or if there's just sort of like a tangential connection. Um, mm. But that worries me because I don't like that stuff at all. <laughs> first yeah. of all, and it just seems to me to be. I don't want to say oversimplified because it's certainly not simple. Simple, um, but it seems to me like a, a too uh, a too simple connection between difference is good and identity is bad, and we're going to use this as a genealogical critique to just say everything we see in the world that's bad, we're going to say it's identitarian thinking at the root of it, um, and everything that's good, the cure to that's going to be to take this identitarian thinking and change it to being differential thinking, mm. and that just seems to me like does not at all get to the normative question of what we should do. It's really just a way of thinking differently about a situation and then moving on to the next one. And almost, and I don't want to make two broad strokes here, but a frustration that I get with Deleuzean type um, thinkers is a lot of the sort of solutions to political problems seem to be analysis and then at this really conceptual level. And then we're kind of yeah. done. And I don't see how there's any clear entailment of any sort of the political maneuverings or ethical um, judgments that follow from that. Um, if anything, it seems like a diffuse, like eternally diffuse number of things could follow from that. Uh, and that's not unique to, to this Deleuzean critique, right? I mean, everyone has ever done ethics or moral philosophy has had the critique of too many things follow from this, mm. um, all, and some of which seem to be contradictory or mutually exclusive. So that's a very common critique, but it seems especially um the point here and i don't know if that's just my lack of engagement 
with um, this type of thinking. It's probably a lot of that because it's not the kind of thing that I you know, normally am dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. But that seems to be uh, the frustration for me here. And, you know, maybe we'll jump into the epilogue a little more uh, later as well. But I really enjoyed the really brief two pages or so that the epilogue took here because Barbara pretty much explicitly says, um, you know, this is not just about rethinking Christianity and religion. This is getting at the heart of political issues, a thing which we've talked about numerous times in these episodes. What is the impetus for politics here? It seems like it's not explicitly stated, but it's right there, like in the middle of text. It's like embedded in it, right? Mm. And Barbara basically says, look, global capitalism has these kind of twin notions of value, one of which says there's an abstract universal notion of value. Um, and that's sort of, you know, monetary and finance and stuff like that. And that applies to everyone, uh, no matter what your different particularities are. There's also this kind of irreducibly particular cultural value as well. And that's sort of following from this kind of multiculturalism logic, um, where all these individual discrete cultures exist out there and they all have their individual uh, valences and stuff like that. And they're ir irreducible to one another and they um, can never, the twain shall meet and stuff. And these notions are th sometimes thought to be in contradiction with each other, but actually they work very well together. And Barbara wants to say that the, the solution instead is to posit the interparticular relay between them rather than one or the other. Mm. And I thought that makes perfect sense following the logic developed here. It's exactly what I thought was kind of embedded in this book so far, but laid out in very succinct and clear, concise fashion. And I have no idea what the fuck it means. Mm. Yeah. So, the, I mean, this is, I think, a common criticism of the entire Deleuzean Spinozist project, right? The one that I think Hart and Negri are trying to work through in their reformulation of the critique of political economy or of a, of a Marxist political philosophy, if not a critique of political economy, um, at least not explicitly so. But um, I think I'm, I'm always reminded by this thing that I, I know Michael Burns wrote about it, and I think we talked about it in an article that he wrote, but it's something that he derives from uh, Bedu's distinction between, I think it was like dialectical materialism and then materialist dialectics, whereas I think it was dialectical, I can't remember how it went, but like, you know, one way of viewing things is that there's only language, languages and bodies. Yeah. Um, and then for Bedu, it's, yeah, there are only languages and bodies, but there are also events. And so I think what Barber is doing here is he's trying to kind of do something similarly. And this is part of the problem, I think, of the post-phenomenological tradition, um, let's say even maybe the post-structuralist tradition of France, is that they are so they are so conditioned by discursive analysis. They're so conditioned by um, you have phenomenology, then you have structuralism, and those are the sort of foundations out of which they're working to which they're responding. And so, ironically, they're reproducing maybe, let's say, a lot of the priors that they're trying to themselves move out from. I think they're aware of that, though. Um, but they end up reproducing some of those priors in their efforts to uh, overcome them or or to move beyond them or to deconstruct them for Derrida, right? And um, I think that... Uh, I think Deleuze is quite different because a lot of the discursive tradition that comes in this post-phenomenological and post-structural tradition doesn't really have a robust metaphysics or ontology, whereas Deleuze is trying to do that. And I think that's part of the reason why somebody like Barber 
would be attracted to Deleuze. That's why I'm attracted to Deleuze. Um, it wasn't the fingernails? <laughs> no, definitely not. What's up with like creepy, like weird philosopher dudes? Like, why can't they just be like, you got weird ass beards and weird fucking, there's always something weird <laughs> about like them physically. Um, but no, um, it's, uh, it, it's this idea that, that we can't just simply think about structures and we can't just simply think about the material world. Right? We can't just think about language, and we can't just think about bodies. We can't just think about structure. We can't just think about material things. We have to think about events, the things that rupture, the things that come from without, that reorganize, that recalibrate, that disrupt things, the things that maybe are unconditioned. Maybe they are conditioned, but we have to think about those things that radically transform. And I think there are Primarily, at least from, from what I can think right now, there are two approaches to take. There's the Bedouin approach, which is like this weird platonic mathematics of the void. And then there's the Deleuzean approach, which is that there is this excessive surplus of imminence that is the event or that is evental. For Bedou, the events are rare and they only happen sometimes. For Deleuze, it's all the time. The events are constantly taking place in the shift of these uh, differentialities of differentialities that that is evental. So he talks about Barbara talks about here about this kind of like rethinking of apocalyptic, right? Not in the Pauline sense, but thinking about apoc apocalyptic as diasporic, as differential, as this um, this perpetual disruption and decomposition of the discursive traditions that are always trying to enclose meaning. They're always trying to enclose value. They're always trying to enclose identities, but that perpetually. The evental ontology of Deleuze is always disrupting that. Now, the problem is, is that with every disruption, or what Deleuze would call a deterritorialization, there's then a re-territorialization. So it isn't that identarian thinking is wrong or bad. It's that it is limited. It's that it is productive and creative, but only within its limits that are predetermined by the plane of transcendence from which it operates. But that plane of transcendence isn't a singular transcendence as it would have been in like the, the metaphysics of like Aquinas or something like it, a platonic metaphysics or an Augustinian metaphysics. It's that transcendence is this thing that is always being reproduced in the priors uh, through the act of enclosure and foreclosure within a discursive tradition or a regime of control. And so it's not that identitarian thinking is bad, it's just that it isn't sufficient for revolutionary thought to truly overcome and transform um, these regimes or these discursive traditions that we're trying to contest and remake and reformulate and seeking whatever it is the fuck that we're thinking. But then again, that's the thing. Okay, so then you're presuming that you're seeking something. There's this, there's still this maybe fetishization of a revolutionary thought. But again, we also then have to situate these post-phenomenological thinkers, post-World War II, many of them are post-May 68 in France. And so there is this almost a priori valorization of the revolutionary spirit. And maybe this gets into what we talked about with Darius, that there's something um, uncontested even in these decompositional, deconstructive uh, logics of difference that work within that paradigm of revolutionary spirit that we could trace back to the Jacobins, right? Um, or, you know, 
what, wherever else we want to draw our lineage to. I'm sure there are many ways to draw a genealogy. But that there's something about it that, like, yeah, the Jacobin Revolt wasn't sufficient for Marx because it didn't really contest, and so you get the rise of the Third Estate, and so then you have to have some sort of new formulation of revolutionary thought, and then you get the sort of, like, post-Marxists, and they're still working. But nevertheless, there's a through line that's connecting them, and maybe there's maybe there's a transcendent logic of the revolutionary spirit that's uncontested. Maybe that's what you're sensing and you're honing into because that's what's ultimately guiding these things, but maybe it's a fetish that itself is uncontested. Does that? Do you think so, maybe? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I don't want to get too far away from the book, but I think just really briefly, there's certainly a sense in which, given that the you know context is post-revolutionary uh, France leading up to, you know, May 68 and stuff like that. And that's where Deleuze comes from and his milieu. Um, it doesn't seem to me like there's any sense in which this Deleuzean framework has to be connected to like Marxism or socialism at all. I feel like the part of my, my concern is that uh, you could read this and I think people have read this and you can find uh, elements for like really extreme right-wing thinking following from this. Um, and I don't think you can necessarily. Well, I don't want to make the claim you can't do that with something like Bajou because you probably can. Um, at least more like statist versions of of leftism that are authoritarian. But um, I guess this kind of all goes back to whether you buy the notion that you can make sense of the notion of difference as proceeding logically or logically proceeding identity. And I think I don't accept that at the very beginning. So I guess. <laughs> My worries about the exterior are sort of ephemeral at that point. Mm. Um, but I think that the consequences of of the ontological claim of difference preceding identity logically um, come out this way. And so my worries about the periphery just sort of follow from my worries at the center, although it's my worries at the periphery that are closer to what I mostly care about. So that's why I, I bring those up. Mm. Um but yeah, I don't think that this is like a dead end or anything. I, as I said, I think I'm much more comfortable with it when talking about more abstract uh, notions of thought, like discursive traditions, than I am with material realities and objects. Um, although I don't want to, obviously, I want to claim, as we've said many times in the podcast, that thoughts are material as well, um, mm -hmm. but in a different mode. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know necessarily where I'm going with all that. Uh, my thoughts here are still uh, a bit confused and. Mm. And, and abstracted right now. But um, that's just my, my general worry about Deleuzean thinking that I think comes out here when talking about what we do with these concepts, Christianity, religion, and secularism, once we've sort of accepted this notion that they are interparticularly co-constituted uh, co with one another. Um, it's not clear to me that, it, that the solutions for future thought are obvious necessarily, mm. other than to just apply the same logic of imminence to new discursive traditions, um, which is interesting, certainly in its own light. Um, but given that, you know, I think we're so interested in this particular history of Christianity, religion, and secularism, and uh, what follows from that and rethinking um, the modes of those different concepts, mm -hmm. that the fact that it's not really obvious what to do next with them um, is a bit concerning. Well, it's it's a perpetual state of naming. It's that the schism that he talks about with like the Jewish Christian schism in Yoder's thought. The reason that Yoder's thought is insufficient ultimately is because he doesn't think that schism schisms that like 
are all the time, that everything is ultimately schismatic, right? And so there's this push and this pull between schism and then enclosure and schism and enclosure. And what Barber wants to do is he wants to sort of re-centralize, if you will, the logic of schismatism, if we can, um, or what he calls diaspora. And what that leads to in in uh, in a in relation to this term fabulation is that you end up with this perpetual process of naming. That signification is perpetual. It's always going to be improper. It's never going to be fully articulate or fully accurate or adequate to the situation. But um, because excess and imminence is always going to disrupt it, there's always going to be a sort of diasporic, uh, excessive schism, if you will, or schismatic. But nevertheless, then what that 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 necessitates is this perpetual process of fabulation. Now, what I wonder is, does that then give agency to collectives to fabulate in productive senses or in ways that would better serve the ends of, I don't know, egalitarian visions for yeah, humanity that, or that's whatever? That's exactly the point I made on a previous episode, right? I don't want to be co-constituted with the fucking neo-Nazis. Right. Nor do I think Nazi fabulation is on the same level as, you know, the like honest, you know, Tibetan Buddhist fabulation or whatever. Right. So the question would be then is does uh, does Nazi fabulation operate genuinely from uh, the chaos and the void, let's say, or does it operate an issue from identitarian thought? Now, this may seem like like an unfair like front loading, but I would argue. And I think Barber would say that Nazi fabulation is essentially issuing from an identitarian logic. Now, here's where the, the, well, so this is everything, well, though. Well, that right, but everyone's it is, thought is infected with identitarian thinking, so that's not unique to it. Is you always start from an identitarian position, but the question is: is um, does the Nazi logic simply then reproduce that identitarianism, or does it actually uh, attest to imminence? And I think the the, the the framework, the Deleuzian framework would argue that, well, actually, uh, no. Like any genuine expression that attests to difference is revolutionary. See what I mean? Now, yeah, this is a problem, like saying everything in the ocean is wet. Right, yeah, and this is a problem because it almost seems like a, like a convenient way to just justify your priors, right? To be like, any position I disagree with is because it's an identitarian position. <laughs> Right? Identitarian position. Like, oh no, it can't be conservatism, it can't be the Tea Party, it can't be a, a Nazi logic, because all of those are identitarian. But anything that is progressive, or anything that is revolutionary, issues from difference. I don't, I, I've heard people like criticize that before, or criticize it that way. That's not what they're saying, because that kind of gets the cause-effect relationship reversed. It's actually the other way around. It's that we need to understand what it is about difference itself that is revolutionary. And then we need to understand what it is that is counter-revolutionary. Counter-revolutionary thought or counter-revolutionary traditions essentially operate according to this logic of capture and identitarianism. So therefore, the point for Deleuze and Guattari in why they write Capitalism and Schizophrenia is because what they think is, is that any and all such logics of enclosure are necessarily counter-revolutionary. The true revolutionary spirit is simply escaping the logic of enclosure per, per se, or what we might say, the any sort of discursive tradition that operates according to the plane of transcendence in Barber's term. So to think of Christianity afresh, to rethink its beginnings, to rethink religion, to rethink secularity from within this framework 
is to eschew the tendency towards enclosure and identitarianism that would be counter-revolutionary and to think from a truly apocalyptic and revolutionary frame, which would be then to think from difference. And that that is the only way out of just simply residing in these like domains of enclosure or these apparatuses of capture. Yeah, I think I'm fine with that as far as it goes. I just don't think it really gives you much at all impetus for for like practicality about what to do so much as it does about what to think. Um, and so I'm certainly going to agree with the fact that there's a certain kind of authoritarianism in the thought that follows from belief in like static identities given on high from God uh, to man and never shall we you know alter them. Um, and that being open, more open to the idea that different discursive traditions are differentially constituted is obviously accurate in terms of what actually is the case when it comes to uh, individual and collective thought. Um, and so being more accurate about those things is obviously going to be good since we're not going to be like acting based upon false pretenses. Um, so that kind of more obvious dimension I'm fine with. I just don't know what this gives us by putting, by placing the difference at the ontological level. Um, how, what does that give us more than what I just uh, sort of detailed? This more practical, like, yeah, things are, you know, change over time and are modified and are co-constituted with other things. And that's just kind of how things work, including thoughts and, and, and uh, sort of collective ideas. And so any sort of like authoritarianism where you claim that an idea is static over time and never changes is just false and inac is inaccurate. And so we should reject that. Um, and by doing so, we can sort of move away from this more authoritarian forms of thought. Um, what does the, the ontological framework give us that the practical one doesn't? Uh, I mean, we could say it grounds it, right? It makes it so that you have a grounding, so that it isn't just simply some sort of, um, I don't know, ad hoc decisionism. No? I mean, it still seems like an ad hoc decisionism because you have these differentially constituted uh, identities and values, and then you have to decide what to do with them. It doesn't tell you at all about how to act or what to do. It just tells you how to critique current forms that exist, gives you tools for that, but it doesn't tell you what to do. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there is um, there's a problem of prescription here, I think. Um, I, I think that that is something that is endemic in the Deleuzian framework, which is why I think that... Uh, Deleuzean metaphysics itself and, and the Deleuzean project itself runs into certain problems and and it and it often not that it necessarily has to but it often branches off into a type of passive nihilism that it just turns into okay cool so then that means that we can just simply experiment and just continually continual naming and we have our sort of like micro revolutionary flights of of freedom and cool like the logic of christianity was never a singular one in the first place and so we can just i don't know let's the emerging church like let's just build labyrinths and i don't know like sing you two songs in our service and that's <laughs> fine and 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 the question is okay like it's not that that's bad i'm not like saying that you shouldn't have a labyrinth in your inner city philadelphia hipster church do your thing people um but the question is is and and i know this just goes to the heart of your concerns is is what is guiding which choices we make and and how do we understand 
um, like path dependency, <laughs> to use a social scientific term, right? How do we understand why it is that certain trajectories, which do seem to be tendential, how, how do we understand which directions they're heading and why they're heading that direction and whether or not they should head that direction? And, and I almost wonder if what is most beneficial about this type of approach of thinking imminence is that what it does is it allows us um, to reconceive of time and space in a way that perpetually engages us. It, it like reorients us, if you will, to the world, and therefore it perpetually engages us in the process of construction. And then it's and then it really is kind of up to us to figure out how to engage. So it it doesn't really leave us which mu with much of an ethic, I don't think. But it gives us the tools to engage in a process of of doing ethics. So it's almost meta-ethical. Yeah, and there might be, you know, uh, I think it was, I can't remember who said it, but there's like a, a sort of philosophical, like effective response we start to have at the bottom level to certain philosophical concepts that exist where we're just kind of making a decision about axioms, right? And your disposition yeah. will just sort of affect which you prefer. And yeah. there's some there's some respect with which, you know, the Deleuzian framework seems to be we got to avoid the authoritarian tendency even over the possibility that we don't have any clear impetus on what to do. Whereas the kind of Bajuian tendency might be, no, we, we got to avoid the possibility of, of being lazy uh, and being sort of disaffected. And even if that means we make mistakes along the way and mm -hmm. fall into like authoritarian thinking or, or activity. Um, and maybe you just can't have both. Like maybe you have to trade off. Um, I think it was mm -hmm. Quine who said, you know, he prefers desert landscapes. And so his ontology followed hmm. from that. He denies the existence of basically everything uh, abstract except for like numbers. Um, and so there might be like just a, a philosophical disposition at the bottom of these things that tells you which framework you're going to be more comfortable with. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think we can sum this up. So Barber says, uh, to kind of for his thing and then if you want to talk just briefly about the epilogue but he says does this mean diaspora by affirming what is differential calls for the end of all discursive tradition like does this just mean pure chaos just pure micro revolutionary creation endless pragmatic experimentation he says not entirely what it demands is that discursive traditions become capable of existing differentially which is to say of becoming diasporic. And I think what he means here, there's an irony here, there's a paradox here, but it's how can a discursive tradition, which he has just then kind of wanted to say isn't a singular discrete unit, how does it exist differential, differentially? And this is that issue of kind of like the formal, the form and content thing. So the discursive tradition, the form, and I think I've talked about this before, the form of a discursive tradition as differential, as diasporic, is kind of, um, it's noise. It's frazzled at the ends, right? It's unkempt. It, it isn't uh, perfectly enclosed. It's a process, right? Like my hair in the morning. Exactly. It is. It's it's going in all in all these other directions. It isn't been combed yet. It isn't manicured. Um, you can try to do that, but then as soon as you do that, by the end of the day, your hair gets all fucking crazy again, right? Um, or you go to sleep again and you get frazzled again. There's always this process of frazzling at the edges, at the margins. And 
So it's not the end of discursive traditions. It's not the end of Christianity. It's not the end of secularity. It's not the end of any other sort of religious framing. But it's recognizing that all of these framings themselves um, are processes. They are in a state of becoming. They are diasporic. And I, I appreciated that because it's kind of like the the metaphor of like cultivating a garden, right? You don't just like plop the seeds in and then out pop the fruit and you eat them, right? You actually have to go out every day and cultivate and grow um, these things. And they're going to be affected by the environment in different ways as the environment changes and the different yeah. soils and everything else. And so I, I like that, that metaphor because it, it brings out the notion of, of becoming here that you're talking about. Yeah, and you got to pull weeds and some crops are going to fail and so you have to take them out and then replant them. But then every replanting isn't just a reproduction of the same, but it's a new there's something novel about it, and then you kind of discard it. But you don't just discard it and throw it away. You use it as what is it, mulch? Where you kind of like use it for you kind of put it in the ground, and it goes back into fertilize the ground differently. So there's this endless process of of transformation and co-constitution where nothing is wasted, um, and and um, and nothing just kind of comes out of nowhere. There's this context, but nevertheless, there's still an excessive potency that is within that garden, right? We may not always be aware of what that potency is. Sometimes it sneaks up on us, right? Like sometimes hmm. this flower and that flower pollinate in a way and they create a new flower. And you're like, well, what the fuck? I didn't realize that you could have a purple rose. But you do because, you know, this flower and that one kind of created it in a particular way. And and so there, there there's there's a site of potency that exists um, uh, or there's a tendency of potency that exists as well. And so the question is, Is can we attune ourselves to that potency? Can we attune ourselves to the virtual or to the, the deep chaos, to the diasporic in such a way that we can kind of force or guide it in a particular way? Or are we just simply um, carried along in the motion? And I don't think – I think it's kind of both. We're carried along and we're in control. We're in control and we're not in control. We're being pushed – and we're being uh, and we're given some level of agency. And again, there it's existing in that state of kind of irony uh, of paradox that I think um, is something that Barber would want to kind of place forward. And then I think this is why he says you have to just endlessly engage in perpetual naming. You're going to be constantly resignifying and retransforming things and renaming things and um, kind of recalibrating what Christianity is, what secularism is. You know, it's not just this logic of supersession where one gets rid of and discards the other. But even if people never ever called themselves Christians like 150 years from now, there would still be a remnant of the sort of metaphysics of Christianity that persists, right? Um, and it's it's recognizing how it is that we work within these kind of uh, form and content relations uh, in in a logic within a logic of imminence, I think I don't there's something know. very Socratic about it, isn't there? The kind of constant questioning, uh, going back to the um, identities that um, are created, the the fruits and the vegetables that are created in the garden, and going and, and reconstituting them, and regrowing, and adding new mm -hmm. elements to the soil and whatnot. Like the some things are out of your control, like the environment and the weather and the soil and stuff like that, right? But there are certain things within your control as well. But you always just have to recognize that. Uh, you don't really know all of what's going on and you have to kind of constantly question and critique. That's very Socratic and kind of genuinely philosophical. So I appreciated that element of it. Hmm. Did you want to say anything real quick about the epilogue? Well, just to wrap up. 
No, I, mean, I think I addressed my um, what I thought about it in the comment I made a few minutes ago okay. um, about global capitalism. Did you have any thoughts on it? Um, I'm trying to think. I had a little note here. What was my note? Oh, my note was key. As in, remember this. This is key. Uh, <laughs> what did I highlight? So he says, what he, what he is suggesting then is that imminence in its namelessness and excessive signification in its simultaneous production and disembedding of names, Christianity, religion, the secular, among others, is like a work of art. There is no proper way, to, uh, there is no proper way of naming the value for every value brought out of imminence will be improperly excessive. And yet it is precisely this relay, this thoroughly differential milieu, that enables the creation of value or values. And that's it. It's, it's, what he's doing is he's reorienting our disposition to ethics. So I think, I think what he would say maybe, or okay, what I would say then is I think maybe the question that you are putting to the Deleuzian framework and maybe to the text of, of Barbara here is still operating from uh, what he might call like a transcendent plane, right? Rather than I think what he would want to do is say, well, let's, let's turn ourselves, rather than looking at the issue, let's turn and let the issue kind of like, let's work from the issue and then allow the differential milieu to empower us, to maybe use a term that isn't entirely accurate, but to empower us to create values moving forward. So it's a sort of dispositional realignment. Rather than looking at the object of inquiry, it is sort of becoming part of the process of inquiry itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that's just, again, I think recapitulating what we said before. And yeah. my, my concern, again, is just that that doesn't tell you anything about which values to create. No. Um, and there are some doesn't. that are bad and some that are not. So, yeah, it's just, again, I appreciate the dispositional kind of uh, mode of talking about this because that's something I think is very useful. Um, it's the, the more ontological claims that I think I have more trouble with. Let me ask you this. Why do we need to know what values to create? I mean, that's a sort of meta-ethical question. Like, why, why do you think that, um, that there's something deficient in this? Because there's, there's an a priori that, that you're working from as well, you know? Yeah, it's not that I think that there's a, a, like a stable set of values that we have to discover and then um, live off of those. Uh, that's, I think, a, a kind of really perverse identitarian thinking that right. Barbara rightly critiques that kind of notion here. Um, but more that I think um, there's something about a philosophy in which, especially when concerned with discursive traditions and whatnot, that we have to have some sort of import into asking what we do with this. What is the point of this? And I think that that's very much in this kind of Deleuzean type thinking. And I think Barbara brings it out here in the epilogue by saying, you know, global capitalism has these kind of twin notions of value, and the point is to reject both, not to reject either of them, but kind of incorporate both of them into a relay. Um, and I just, I don't think that that really gives any sort of answer um, that it posits or that it's claiming to give, um, in that it's basically more of a critical notion, right? It's this is a mm. set of tools for how to critique. Identit identitarian formulations that exist in discursive traditions. And I think a pretty good one. And I think I agree just kind of generally, at least with the ends um, that it produces. But it seems like it's acting as like a, like a um, 
an overarching answer to how to do philosophy. Um, Barber's not claiming that here, but certainly I think in the more like uh, Deleuzian formation. Um, and I just don't see how it does that. I don't think there's anything particular that follows from um, this notion of, of difference logically preceding identity, mm. nor do I think that it can help you discern between different options. Um, again, that's not unique to this framework. Um, and this is much bigger than the, than Barbara's concerned with here, just an epilogue. Mm. But I think he hints here at the notion that this is going to be productive for something about global politics. And I just wonder what that would even be mm. other than like a critical notion of everything else, which sure that's fine, but, um, it's not the only formulation that can do that. Mm. Yeah. And I almost wonder if you're, you're like primarily concerned with, um, like the methodological question of how primarily. So even though I do think that this is, there's, there's some interesting methodological implications to draw from this. You just want to know, okay, cool. I don't necessarily need to know what are the values. That's why you say like, there doesn't need to be this field of like prescribed values that we just simply reproduce, but rather you're kind of like, but we do need to have some sort of system of, uh, whether it's criteria or some sort of tendency, there needs to be some sort of guide that will help us to navigate the sea of competing value claims. And, and for, for all you, of its faults, Baju gives you that, <laughs> yeah. at least in like a nascent form. Even it's got tons of issues, but it gives you that methodological framework for figuring it out, which again might just go back to the fact that, you know, any framework which is going to give you those answers or at least help you find those answers is going to fall into a bunch of pits because of it mm. whereas Deleuze maybe stands back and um and not giving you those answers also helps you to not make those same mistakes but then you might make mistakes of omission as opposed to commission mm. interesting so if quine likes desert landscapes what kind of landscapes do you like troy i was gonna say what kind of claim what does uh, Deleuze like he likes the um uh, like Dr. Seuss landscapes. I mean, he wrote a book called Thousand Plateaus. He likes plateaus, man. <laughs> <laughs> he likes rhizomes and plateaus. That's what he talks about. I think he likes fractals. That 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 literally is the answer. I mean, yeah, people yeah, often is. refer to him as like having a fractal ontology. That's that's probably what he loves. These self-repeating patterns that uh, that you would find in nature or in computer programs. Um, I, I think that would be him. But for real, yeah, what landscapes do you like? I like the rolling hills of Northern Ireland. Do you? Those are my landscapes. What does are that they? mean for ideological framework? I don't know. But <laughs> I don't know. I want to know that. We should analyze that. <laughs> what are yours? <laughs> God, I, the weird thing is, is I love the hills of the west coast of Ireland so much, but my favorite my favorite landscapes. Oh my God, what are my favorite landscapes? But here's the oh, this is so me, right? I like them all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that, I should have thought of that. That is definitely you. I had like anxiety when you asked me the question because I was like, I don't know what to say. Because I'm in my mind, I'm picturing mountains and I'm picturing streams and I'm picturing like fly fishing and I'm picturing the beach and I'm picturing like, you know, that moment when you break above the clouds in an airplane and you look at the like, I love that. Like, that's one of my favorite things. That's getting I love way too specific, dude. <laughs> I love all, I love all of that, man. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up this book. It was uh, it was an interesting read. Do you think that you would have gained more had you read this when you were actually studying theology, like at the institution when you were doing, like, say, for example, your MA? Or do you think that you have gained something from it now? Or is it more just kind of like it's intriguing, it's giving you tools to navigate, kind of like literature review. It's helping you navigate the landscape a little bit, but that in terms of your own development, that it isn't as practical as maybe as it would have been before. Yeah, it's definitely the latter. Uh, I think I mentioned in a previous episode we did that I certainly think what I would have gotten more out of it if I had read this back when I was doing my MA in religious studies. But then again, I I think I've said this, but if I haven't, um, this has probably been the most um, convincing uh, sort of presentation of a Deleuzean type argument that I've come across in like written form. Hmm. Um, and that's, I haven't read a ton, but I've read some. I've read some Deleuze too, and I found this much more convincing. Um, and I think it's even more challenging by the fact that it's in an area that I've done study in, right? Mm. In terms of religion and secularism. So the fact that it, it came across so convincingly in that aspect, I think it just um, goes to, you know, um, complement Barber's ability to formulate this argument kind of step by step and make the claim about interparticularity for each of these three levels of Christianity, religion, and then secularism. Um, mm. I think it's been great. I definitely don't think that uh, developing your toolbox is a bad thing at all. I think mm. it's been really wonderful in that way. And I'm glad that we've done it together because um, as much as I felt that it was uh, convincing and, and, and a well-developed argument, having someone who's probably more sympathetic to it than I am in you has been very helpful as well to kind of bounce these ideas off of and to help it uh, extrapolate um, the meaning and consequences in ways that I probably wouldn't have been able to do on my own, given my lack of familiarity with this kind of thinking. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's weird. I think for me at the you? moment in, in my development, I am torn between, and I know a lot of people are, but I am torn between Bedou and Deleuze. And I'm, I'm, I think there's a, there's an incommensurability there between them. And, uh, I mean, Bedou has a book on Deleuze called The Clamor of Being, I think is what it's called, which is just a great name because I think <laughs> this differential noise it, for that Bedou. Get, that gets the dispositions, dude. What do you mean? The Jews fucking OCD like I am. <laughs> it is, man. It's the clamor, and man. I can't deal with clamor. that. That's it. That's exactly it. It's this noise for him is just too much. It's like fucking sit down, Deleuze. Just please. Yeah, he, I want to arrange all my little figures <laughs> in the shelf in their proper formation. Otherwise, I'm going to flip up my shit a little bit. <laughs> I know. And for me, I, I'm in the kind of like with how I love all the landscapes, I love them both. And I, I find them very convincing and very, um, in a lot of ways. But then at, at, at a point, I do feel like you kind of have to side with one of them. And I haven't fully sided with one of them. Actually, I do something kind of the opposite in my book, where I actually trace back to what I believe is a common source of inspiration for both of them, Sartre, um, mm -hmm. where both of them derive different elements from him and take them in a different direction. But I sort of create a, 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 I kind of almost triangulate, if you will, between the three, Sartre, Deleuze, and Bedou, to create, to kind of create 
uh, maybe like a field of of problems that I feel like are going to condition a lot of my work moving forward. But I'm becoming more and more interested in in mathematics, but that doesn't actually mean that that means Bidu is going to win out because Deleuze does a lot of work on differential calculus. And so um, there's this philosopher named uh, Zalamea who has written on both Deleuze and Bidu in mathematics. And I'm really curious. I'm going to read his book here in the coming months and take my time. Is his the philosophy of mathematics book? Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's called like the synthetic philosophy of mathematics or something like that. Do you know it? Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. And... um, and I'm really curious to see how he engages both of them because he is a proper philosopher of mathematics. And so it'll probably be a very difficult read for me because that's not my specialty. But I'm really curious to see how it is that he engages Deleuze's use of like differential calculus and then Bedouin set theory. And I feel like at some point in my life, I'm going to have to just fucking plant my flag in the ground somewhere. Someday. No, you will And <laughs> it goes against your very nature. I know. I know. I know. All right, sick. So let's move into our final segment of the episode. This is the Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us meaning in a world that is often perceived to be devoid of meaning. So, Troy, it is your turn to share what's making you feel good this week. So what's making me feel good this week is a little YouTube Basketball. show. Basketball. Oh. Well, yeah, but I've, I've done that enough, so... Um, <laughs> A little show on YouTube that uh, I was uh, led to discover um, called The Real Bros of Simi Valley. Have you heard of it? What? No. <laughs> yeah. So it's a it's like a, what do you call them? A mockumentary of a reality show, like a mock reality show? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's called The Real Bros of Simi Valley. And it's about uh, like several 20-something dudes and their girlfriends who live in Simi Valley, California. And for people who are not from Southern California, Simi Valley is a uh, above average in terms of wealth um, suburban community that's sort of northwest of Los Angeles and it's west of the San Fernando Valley. So if you imagine like the Big Lebowski um, being kind of the San Fernando Valley, which is a little bit more on the poorer side, um, Simi Valley is a little bit, uh, a lot more white um, and suburban. And pretty Mm -hmm. much, correct me if I'm wrong here, Austin, but an extension of Orange County north of Los Angeles. (laughs) I feel like, yeah, it goes, you get the valley and then Simi Valley and then you get Santa Clarita and Valencia, which is just straight up Orange County 2.0. Well, yeah, I mean, um, Santa Clarita though seems to be like a a real strong enclave of of yuppies and yes. uh, old wealth. Um, whereas Simi Valley has some of the uh, more disparaging elements of whiteness, I think, that are also true of uh Parts of Orange County I'm thinking of are not like um, maybe where you grew up, uh, not, like, not like Oceanside and stuff like that. Um, those are like really, really nice, like Santa Clarita type areas. But like Huntington Beach? Yeah, something more like that. Maybe not, more a little more inland than that. But when I think of Fuller, OC. Fullerton? Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, I think you would appreciate this, especially because of the Southern California jokes that are in it. But. Um, I've just seen the first season and it's only like six episodes and they're all like 10 minutes long. So they're super short. You can watch them while you're just eating lunch or something, which I've been doing. Um, and it's starring the guy who was the, the jock douchebag in American Vandal, the first season of American oh, yeah, Vandal, yeah, yeah. Okay. who I love this guy. Yeah, yeah. He's just, he plays the douche so well, um, the high school douche and here, and this show is, is so wonderful because you would think given this setup, 
that it would be just withering in its criticisms of of whiteness and um, suburban life and and stuff like that. And certainly, there's a reason for you know those kinds of things to exist, right? To just exoriate that kind of culture. But it's not about that. It's making fun of these people, but it also kind of loves them too. It kind hmm. of like appreciates them, and you kind of care for them, even though they're all idiots. Like they're all driving around, and everybody has a raised black truck. Oh yeah, so dude. much so, so much so that people can't park, and their <laughs> trucks exceed their driveways. So there's, this, there's this like constant problem with trying to park your truck because of all the other trucks. Yeah, um, there's this kind of almost I think like infamous now phrase of maybe you've heard this as uh, having grown up in Southern California, but I was never aware of this. Uh, smoking weed referred to as burning. Yeah, you can burn. Yeah, burn one. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, you burn. I've heard burn one, but not just just burn. You burn, dude. Oh, I haven't heard dude, that. Dude, okay. do you burn? You want to burn? I've heard burn one, but just burn. Yeah, I haven't heard that either. <laughs> it said it said repeatedly, and it's very funny. There's one character who uh, was almost a professional skater, and then he got hurt and couldn't skate anymore. So his quote unquote job, as he describes it is to bring a lawn chair to the skate park, uh, drink Miller Lite, and critique the 10-year-old skateboarders and tell them how to skate correctly. He's a consultant. That's what he does all day. I love it. It's wonderful. Oh, what, one, one character, um, they throw kind of a party because he gets, quote-unquote, accepted to community college. <laughs> <laughs> Which oh, is wonderful. Great. Um, but what I love most about it, as, as I mentioned earlier, is that so many of these of comedies nowadays, especially in this kind of like mockumentary, mock reality show style, they just they just destroy the characters. They exploit them. They make them horrible. They make you enjoy their suffering. Mm. And I don't I don't like that generally. I think mm. that's one easy to scapegoat because there's so many problems with humanity. You can easily just exploit suffering and pain and bad decisions as much as you want. And it feeds into some of the more negative parts of our personality. Um, sometimes there's there's reasons when it's justified, but generally I think it's it's at least a higher goal to be like we're going to make fun of these people, right? And this whole culture, and it's going to be funny, but you're also going to kind of care about them hmm. um, and realize that they're just regular people and they kind of want good things for themselves and the people they love as well, even hmm. though they're all idiots. Right. And that's more challenging one to do, <laughs> I think. But it also leads to a more uplifting and um, sort of appreciative experience. Uh, especially in just in the short like ten minute episodes, I think it's kind of a wonder that this thing exists, especially on YouTube for free. I feel like that's my whole approach to apologetics. It isn't to like uh, just simply make the people feel like idiots or appear as an idiot, but it's to dismantle them while also showing that guess what, you're kind of an idiot, you know, but in a loving way that shows that they're just a human trying to do their best. And you know what? We're kind of all idiots in our own way. And we That's need those thing. people exactly, yeah. t- to show us those areas where I'm an idiot and to show us those areas where other people are idiots rather than standing from on high like you are just simply canceled. And I think that's that's the thing is like the one approach that you said of the documentaries that, that you don't like so much, it's because there's a moralism in that, right? And it's that... Uh, and that it's used to kind of perpetuate the audience's own ability to pat itself on the back, to create an other, that they're the other, they're the bad, and I'm the pure. And so we have this position from which I can judge them, they're the idiots. But if you can create an empathetic or a sympathetic account, then it sort of kind of 
It allows you to participate in the idiocy while still maintaining a, dif a distance, a critical distance. That's okay. But, you know, it isn't just simply creating a division, a pure division that is like a moralism. Yeah, those kind of things, they're really just, they're not creating characters so much as they're creating like machines of dysfunction. Mm. And that sort of removes agency from the characters when they're just, they're just messed up and they're going to continually do the wrong thing. And you're just waiting with bated breath to see how they're going to fuck it up this time. Mm. Um, and that's, that's just why that's not really a character. That's why I had a problem with like the Firefest documentary and then the Elizabeth Holmes one on Theranos because it just felt like that they were just set up to be the bad people so that there could be a scapegoat so everybody else could feel good about themselves that they're not the bad people. But it doesn't actually do anything, one, to contest the actual power structure that these people are working within that allows them to flourish in the way that they flourished that allows them to game the system in the way that it does. Like, yeah, they, they got some sort of like legal comeuppance, but still, that, that, that just allows us to absolve the larger system from any sort of real transformation or criticism or indictment because we got the bad ones. We got the corrupting influences. The rest of us can pat ourselves on the back because we're not like them, you know? But it does. It creates these monsters that's kind of like that, that we're we're just watching these films to be like, well, what other evil thing does this monster do that I can judge them on as I sit here and eat my Doritos and feel good about myself? <laughs> and I just, I think that that's, I don't know. I, it just struck me as really weird and I, I just don't like that approach. I don't know. Maybe I'm too much yeah, of a pussy, man. And I just want to like, <laughs> kind of like empathize with everybody, but I don't know. Yeah, there, there's a place for that sometimes. Um, but it's, I think, much more challenging, especially with people that are just regular people that have done nothing wrong. They're really just, you know, in a large respect, creations of their circumstance, as we all are, and exploring how their characters would develop within a cultural community like Simi Valley, which is so unique and weird and ridiculous. Yes, yeah. this is weird. How do you think? Because I feel like, especially in certain in certain left cultures, that uh, that like someone like that, that's like a a middle class yuppie type would just be viewed as, um, I don't know, I feel like sometimes they would be viewed like the Orange County type, the Simi Valley type, the Valencia type. Um, there are many other middle-class communities, but those are the ones that I'm most familiar with because I lived in those communities. But they would be viewed kind of as being people who just benefit from privilege. And they kind of... They, because they benefit from their position of privilege, they don't seem to elicit um, concern or care in the way that like this show seems to actually kind of like offer an, uh, an engagement with. But um, it seems that in a lot of discourse that they're kind of just viewed as, you know, um, some sort of degraded form of capitalist embodiment, right? They're not as evil as the billionaires who are pulling the strings, but they're still... They're not the working class, even though I think that's completely wrong because anyone who has to work for a wage is part of the working class. I mean, but but there's this strange dynamic that like middle class yuppies are, you know, they're just instantiations of capitalist privilege. Yeah, you see some of this in the you know criticisms of Bernie going on Fox News and um, trying to speak to Trump voters, um, not necessarily because he's going to win them all over or anything that that's the best strategy or that we should prefer to flip Trump voters over, you know, bring people who are non-voters into voting, but just the kind of tendency to be like, there's good guys and bad guys. And, um, they're that way 
almost since birth and it's intractable and they're never going to change. And so it's better to just sort of uh, leave them aside, not treat them as, you know, people who are, you know, agents who make their own decisions. Mm. Um, and yeah, just to kind of, it's not even a moralism, right? Because that, that term is often used incorrectly. I think it's um, to sort of morally judge someone is to say that they're an agent who has responsibility for their actions. And this even escapes that, right? Because it's mostly just treating them as uh, a machine for producing whatever negative things you think are coming out of them, mm. um, which is not to treat them as an agent. Um, so yeah, that's a bigger issue, but I think it gets to the heart of uh, a lot of media falls into that because it's, it feeds into our um, like, you know, libidinal desire to, to judge other people and mm. to claim that they're, you know, worthless. Mm. Whereas to try to create a comedy that's going to be, you know, implicitly critical of, you know, wealth and privilege and stuff, but to do it in a way that's not um, to moralize in that sense we're talking about. It's, it's an achievement, I think. Is there political value in the, uh, the eye roll? Like, you know, when I watch them and you laugh, but then you just roll your eyes like, Jesus. Like, I feel like <laughs> like that's the appropriate political response because I'm like, when you described their struggle with parking their lifted black pickups, <laughs> I was like, bro, I grew up in that environment, dude. <laughs> dude, I think you would love this because there'd be so many. I want you to watch it and then like report back on all the things that are true to life. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's fucking true, dude. When I was a kid. That's what everyone, all the boys wanted to have a lifted car. I had a red Ford F-150 that I got, thank, well, in a weird way. Uh, I saved I <laughs> saved up my money and I got a an old Camaro and then I crashed the Camaro, but the insurance, <laughs> but the insurance money paid for my car and it was a beater car. I mean, I, I paid like two grand for it. It was, you know, one of those like 1988, like 89 IROX or whatever it was. And I fucking crashed the thing within... God, within six months. But I got money from insurance, and so then I took that money and I put it on a down payment for a red F-150 pickup, and that was my car. Um, that was my car for my senior year of high school. So I had this red Ford F-150, and all I wanted to do, bro, was get that fucker lifted, put it on 33s <laughs> or 35s with a 3 to 5-inch lift. I mean, that's what that's what we talked about. Like, that was it, man. That was like... That was like achieving the next level of what it meant to be a young adult. It was if you could lift lift your truck or something. I don't know. It's so weird. And everybody, like my buddy Scott had a big Chevy Silverado that was lifted on 35s. I mean, I couldn't even go through the list. My other buddy Eric had one. I, mean, I couldn't even go through the list of people who had these big lifted fucking Fords and Chevys. And uh, that was the thing, man. So... And they do. They take up multiple spaces. They got these huge fucking tires <laughs> into a parking lot. They park diagonally. And you're like, what the fuck when you try to go get your subway? And you're like, dude, I can't park anywhere because fucking Eric parked sideways and took up four spots. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. dude. Next season on Real Bros of Rancho Santa Margarita. <laughs> dude, I'm surprised that there hasn't been uh, like I, – I know they did like a couple reality shows, but – I think about this often, but then I think, do you know how much shit I would get if I tried to make a show or tried to write <laughs> a story or a novel about life growing up in South OC? Like, people would just be like, this is just like bro apologetics. And in a way it would be, but <laughs> uh, but this show sounds right up my alley. I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, for sure. It's all on YouTube. Oh, the first season's on YouTube right now. There's been a second season, I think, but I'm not sure where it is. I haven't found it yet. Cool. 
Cool, cool. All right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I uh, want to give a final shout-out to Mubi. Go to mubi.com slash owlsatdawn to get a free extended trial, a 30-day trial. You can email us, owlsatdawnpodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Um, what else? Patreon. Go to our Patreon. You can support us. Get access to bonus episodes. We'll have a new bonus episode up. Uh, it might be up actually consonant with this one that is live on the main thread, so you can check that out where we're going to be talking about Batman and Robert Pattinson, but in an interesting and fun way for people who aren't interested in that sort of thing, like we always do with everything. Basketball, we make it interesting. Batman, we're going to make that shit interesting. So, um, what else am I forgetting? Uh, don't forget if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, if it's five stars, uh, and you ask a question in your review, we will answer it on the next podcast, as long as we can do so in a minute or two. Sick. Sounds good. Well, I think that's pretty much it, yeah? Just one more thing, dude. What's that? Das Vidani, Mary Costi. Mm-hmm.